Well, good morning. Um, it's good, good to see everyone. Uh, before we get started, I do have an announcement. So if you saw this morning out on that front table, uh, there are Ziploc bags with that look like this, and they've got this sheet in them. And so this is for the Open Doors Back to School Project. Um, Open Doors is an organization that, that we partner with and we support. Uh, and so as they are getting ready to serve the community, specifically uh, with kids that are getting ready to go back to school, this is one way that we could be a part of that. So really all it is is uh, it, they're asking us to, to support them by buying some items and then filling this bag with those items. And so each uh, form has specifics on it as to what those are. And then there's like a, a master sign-out sheet. So if you pick one up, make sure you sign it out on there so we know we can keep track of who's got what. Um, so that's one way you can be serving the community. Um, and it's a, it, again, it's going to be a great uh, blessing for families uh, of the community that Open Doors has relationship with. So it's good to see everyone this morning. Um, I'm glad you're here. For those online, it's good to that you're, you're tuning in. It's good to have you with us. Um, this summer, I don't know if this is true for you guys, this summer has been a little bit of craziness, uh, at least for our family. Uh, it has been, it's felt like nonstop since the beginning of the summer. For us, that the beginning of the summer usually means that we start camp things, uh, and so we're at camp quite a bit. This has been true for almost the past six or seven years for us as uh, as we get ready for summer, it involves going to camp and being involved at the things that are going on up there. But this year was a little bit different. This year, uh, we we are, as a family, in this role uh, as the pastor serving here. And so there's been so much more, uh, and, and that's all good things that we're, we're holding and, and we're learning to, to balance. And so summer has just felt like, I need to take a breath. I need to take a break. Um, from the summer. And I found myself the other day thinking, uh, I'm ready for summer to be over uh, and so we can get back into like a normal swing of things. I'm sure if you're in school, that's probably not where you're at. Um, maybe if you're parents of those in school, you're, maybe you are ready for summer to be over too. Uh, but that, it, it's an interesting thought to, to think about ready, the summer ready, we're ready for the summer to be over. Uh, one of the things that I've enjoyed, though, about this summer is our Thursday night farmer's market um, events. And so this has been a, a great time of getting to hang out and meet people in the community. And so if you don't know what's going on, on Thursday nights, we have the farmer's market, the Westfield Farmer's Market that meets right here on Mill Street. They shut Mill Street down, uh, and it's kind of where that curve starts. They have vendors that are coming out and hanging out and selling uh, goods, and we were approached by the farmer's market to say, hey, can we use your parking lot? It's right there. There's a lot of space. It'd be a great opportunity for us to have people park there, and so I took that to trustees, and we brought that to monthly meeting, and, and the church said, yeah, let's, let's do that. Let's partner with the farmer's market and allow them to use the, the parking lot, and it's been a great way to build a relationship and love our neighbors. Uh, that Thursday night event where we're hanging out here, all we're doing is we've set up some, um, some like beach chairs or, or foldable chairs. We hang out there with a cooler full of ice water and popsicles, and we welcome people as they park in the lot. 
They walk over to the farmer's market. Um, this last week, we were able to have actually a couple really good conversations with a few people. Um, some asking, what, what's your church about? What's the, what's the friend's church? Uh, what do they believe? Where do, where do they stand on some things? And so great conversation um, where we're getting to know our neighbors and they're getting to know us. This has been an every Thursday thing since the beginning of June uh, where volunteers have come out and we've just, we've hung out. And not only that, not only have we hung out, but we've made available our restrooms for the vendors and others who are going to the farmer's market. And so we've been able to bless our community that way. And while that might seem insignificant or, or maybe even a silly little thing, that, you know, we're not being intentional, we're not presenting a gospel message in those interactions. We're going to look at chapter 3 of Titus this morning, and Paul would argue something differently. Paul would say that that is very intentional, what we're doing. And, and actually, he writes to Titus and says, hey, there is a, an importance of living life with others in a very intentional way. And so this morning, we're going to dive a little bit deeper uh, into what that looks like for the Christian to live life really in the eye of the public. That's what Paul is writing to Titus in chapter 3 about. And we'll look at the first half of it this week. And in the, in the coming few weeks, uh, we're going to start another series because uh, Titus is not a very long book. So we've got this week in Titus, and then next week we finish out the book uh, at the end, with the end of chapter 3. And then... Uh, the following Sunday is, I believe, the last Sunday of the month, and that weekend is IYM sessions. It's Indiana Yearly Meeting Sessions up in Syracuse at Quaker Haven. And so really what I'm going to do is I'm going to take that time on Sunday morning. Uh, I'm going to kind of give an update of what went on at IYM sessions, and I'm also going to preach through the passage that is the theme for the year, which is a godly inheritance. And so that is uh, Psalm, uh, where'd it go? Psalm 16, I believe. Um, we'll look at that. We'll dive into it. And, and we'll talk about what that looks like for us here in Westfield and what that looks like for the yearly meeting. And, and again, I'll give a brief update as to what went on in yearly meeting sessions. But Paul is writing to Titus in chapter 3, and really he's doing what he's already done in the first two chapters. He's reminding Titus and the church in Crete that doctrine, what we believe, is tied to our duty as Christians, what we do. And so we're going to look at, we're going to finish out Titus, we'll go through the psalm passage uh, after IYM sessions, and then we'll start a new series. And this is where the two kind of tie together. Today we're going to talk about interacting with our community around us and what Paul writes to Titus and how to do that in Crete. In the next series, uh, in, yeah, in the next series, it's going to be based off the book that's been sitting out there, a book by uh, a guy named Tom Mercer. This is actually the last copy for, for now. I'll have more when we start the series, so if you want this one, come find me. Uh, but it's called 8 to 15, The World is Smaller Than You Think. And really what this is, and MNO has read through this, I've read through this, a few others, have you, if you've grabbed the book, maybe you've read through this. What this book is all about is being intentional with those people around us in our worlds. And that's what Paul's writing to Titus here. In chapter 1, he writes about um, how Christians are to lead in their homes and with their families. 
In chapter 2, he writes about how Christians are to lead in the church. And then now in chapter 3, he starts off, and we're going to dive into how we lead and love others outside the walls of this church. Paul reminds Titus, and here's the big idea for the morning, that the church is to be an example for and influential in its community. The church is to be an example for and influential in its community. Right? We've learned a little bit about what the context was for the city of Crete. You had a very pagan city with pagan traditions, pagan culture, and then you've got this church plant in the middle. And pretty much what Paul has done from this point, or from the beginning of Titus until now, is he has said, hey, you're supposed to be different than everyone else around you, and this is how you do that. Mainly in leadership is what the book of Titus' is, is major theme is about. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Titus 3. And before we do that, or as you do that, I'm just going to pray. Because I think there's so much to, to learn, specifically in this chapter, about how we're supposed to live life. With our families, in the church, and outside of the church. So let's pray real quick. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the book of Titus. Uh, I, I thank you that you put it on Paul's heart, that you shaped the words that he wrote down, and that this message is from you directly to us. God, I pray that you would use this time this morning so that we would grow deeper with you and that we would learn to love those around us better. God, I pray that you would use the words that come out of my mouth as a way to help us learn. I pray that I would get out of the way and that your Holy Spirit would just lead. So God, we surrender this time to you. We know you're here. We can feel your presence. We know you're here with us. And we ask that you would lead and guide us. In your name we pray. Amen. So, Titus 3. And I'm going to start with the first two verses in Titus 3. It says this, as Paul writing to Titus, who had been sent to the city of Crete to finish the work of the church plant that Paul had founded. He says this, Remind them to submit to their rulers and authorities, to obey and to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to avoid fighting, and to be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. Titus 3 starts off really with two main points, and we'll look at those this morning. In verses 1 and 2, it's, this is the first po uh, point for the morning, and then the remainder of verses 3 to 8. So the first point is this, that we move outside of the walls because we were once outside of the walls. We move outside of the walls because we were once outside of the walls. And we'll see what that means a little bit more in, in verse 3. But right away, when Paul is addressing the issue of how the church is to interact with its community, 
he goes to the established community, the establishment in that place, the authorities and the rulers, the government. And, and again, you have, as you read this first half of the chapter, you have to remember that Paul is, throughout this book, you, you see it time and time again, he's contrasting the difference between being a believer and a non-believer in the city of Crete. And so he tells Titus, hey, tell your people in the church they have to submit and obey authority. And this is interesting because I think some of us can get on the, get on the defensive and say, but what does that mean? Do I really have to do that? Do I really have to do this? And here's what I would say. If we look at Scripture... What we see in the Old Testament is God establishing the structure of government to rule, for people to be, uh, to be ruled over in a way that is just. That's what the idea was. God, in the very beginning, gives authority to Adam and Eve in the garden, and they're to rule over the entire earth. He gives them authority to do that. After sin... He, they, it moves away from that, and God establishes a king and kingdom that he would reign through and reign over the entire earth, and that was supposed to be how that was going to look like. But we know the story of God's chosen people in the Old Testament and how they continually would, would be on fire for God, would be obeying God, would submit to God, and then little by little they would drift away, and before you knew it, they were... Everything was blowing up. Nothing was going right. They were far away from God, and, and their lives were reflecting of that. And then we see Jesus, who is, comes from heaven and is born on earth as a baby. He grows up, and he says the same thing that Paul is saying. It's actually where Paul gets it. He, he says, hey, we need to respect and, and obey and submit to authority. But there, it's conditional submission when we're talking about man-made authority. Because we don't blindly follow governments that are unjust. Because that's not who God is. God is not an unjust God. God is a just God. He is a fair God. And so as long as those governments are doing what they're supposed to do, are caring for and providing for people... Jesus and Paul and the Old Testament would say, hey, submit to that. That's a good thing. The construct of government is good when it's done that way. Now, when it's unjust, when it goes, rubs up against our morals or our ethics and, and there's issue there, then we really have to examine and say, how do we, how do we address culture here? Because our allegiance first is to Christ, not to a government, not to a, a, a political party. It's first to Jesus. And in Romans 13, this is, Paul brings this point up again to the church in Rome. They were to obey authority because God had instituted it. And, and you got to remember what's going on in Rome at this point. They're... they're the, those in power are trying to gain more power, more wealth. 
the Christians will soon become the, the persecuted community that the Roman Empire does not like and goes after harshly. And Paul's saying, hey, even in that unjust situation, there's still some type of submission that needs to happen. And so there's a tension that's created. And I think we, we as Christians, we have to acknowledge when that tension is there. We can't blindly look away and say everything's perfect and as long as I don't look at it, then we're good. We're, no, we're called to be peacemakers. We're called to bring the gospel that brings hope. And, and so that means that we acknowledge the hard things of the systems we live in. We remember that God, as author of authority, He delegates it to man for our good. But there is the issue of sin. And so there's where the tension comes in. That while God instituted government, instituted authority, uh, has given man authority over places and, and people, there is still the issue of sin that we have to wrestle through. And so while Paul is writing this, he is not, he's not writing this oblivious to what's going on. He knows the tension of what it means to submit to a government that may not be for him. But he knows that his call is higher than that. He knows that the things that he's submitting to, the ways that he's living life in the system of government that he's in, it's for a purpose and it's for a reason. And so what's his, what's his response to that? How do we live in those unjust settings or, or in governments that are hard to live in? He says, well, we pray for our leaders. The ones that we agree with, the ones we disagree with, we pray for them. He writes that to Timothy in 1 Timothy. And he's telling the same thing to Titus here. He's saying, hey, it, it might be hard to live in that city of Crete where there's all this other stuff going on and where the system around you is really built for all those other people, but you're supposed to function within it. And if, and if it's hard, pray for your leaders. So he says to submit and to obey the rulers and the authorities. And then he says to be ready for good works. So outside of the church walls, we try to be productive citizens of where we are. We're, we're joining into the work that's going on around us. And that means that we're ready to do the good things that God has called us to do in that structure, in those places. This is one of the ways that we live different. If you remember back in chapter 1, Paul uses a, a, one of the Cretans philosophers when he says that the people of Crete were lawless. And then he says, Christians, you're not supposed to be that way. The people of Crete were selfish and, and only cared about themselves. And he says, Christians, you're not supposed to be that way. C 
Crete had been conquered by Rome in 67 BC, and, and there was tension there. There was tension because the Cretans in that city, while they were conquered by Rome and, and would later benefit from that in, in the sense of the culture that came, they always felt a sense of tension between them and Rome. And this is true from history. You can go back and look this stuff up. There was a political uneasiness for the citizens of that city and the, the Roman Empire. And so there were, uh, there were insurrections that were constantly going on, fighting up against the, the political system. People were constantly being killed in the city. There were always wars going on. There, there's political tension. There's, it's hard to live in places like that. And yet what Paul is saying is, hey, we have to be law-abiding. We have to contribute to society. Because that's the difference maker. That, that's how people see us and know that we love Jesus and that we're living purposefully is that in the midst of hard things that are going on around us, we are obeying the authorities, we are contributing to society, because those are good works. They were going to be giving life to the city instead of sucking life from it. Again, Paul's contrasting the two different worlds. And this is something we need a reminder of. It's something they needed a reminder of. And Paul starts the whole passage like that. When we're inside of these walls, we forget what's going on around us. We forget about the real life things that families are struggling with, whether that's alcoholism, whether that's financial issues, whether marital issues. We forget because in, inside of here, we're safe or at least we, we should feel that way because we're a family. And this wasn't a new teaching. This idea of obeying and, and, and submitting and of doing good works, this is true in the Old Testament. You see it time and time again. But even there they forget, right? The story of the Israelites how many times are they, they, are they in good standing with God and then soon after they're not because they forgot? They forgot what God had called them to. They forgot how to love their neighbors and how to love God. How many times do the disciples forget what Jesus is teaching them? Often Jesus says, have you forgotten what I've taught you? And in the rest of the New Testament, authors are always reminding their readers to remember the work of Christ and its implication for the church. We forget that we're supposed to step outside these walls. So he starts by addressing how do we interact with those in power, those with influence, those who have the power to make decisions. And then he goes into how do we interact with our community? 
right? We've looked at how we interact with believers in our home, in our churches, but now he goes to non-believers, to the rest of the community. And really, I think there's two ways. There's internal, internal work that needs to be done and then external work. Internally, we have to look at our attitude. How are we looking at the people and community outside of these walls? Are we eager to help them? Are we ready to go? At the ring of a phone or a text message or an email that we get that says, hey, we need help, are we ready to go? Or do we have to go look at our calendars and say, oh, today doesn't work for me? As we live life, right, that's the, the Matthew 28 part of the, commission, the Great Commission. As, as you go, as we live life, we must be willing to help in the good work that's going on around us. Whether that's at the societal level, so community leaders, civil leaders, organizations doing good work like Open Doors. Are we ready to help? in the good things that God is doing around us. Because we're called to support those things. We're called to serve those things. Right? Submit and obey. We're not called to be obstacles of good, but rather bridges of it. And so as long as we can morally and ethically be on the same page, as long as those things that we stand for, the, the, the things that we've rooted our life in in Christ are not compromised, we're called to go into community and work alongside people. To get outside of these walls and be a part of the good ways that God is working. That's what Paul is telling Titus here. But it starts inside it starts with our heart and how we view the world and how we view our call to go and love god and love our neighbors and then once we actually get to that point where we can see the world the way god has called us to see the world in a way that allows us to jump in and say okay i'm ready well here's the external part we actually have to do it it's one thing to say that we're ready to do it. It's a whole other thing to, to, to do something. And so what does this look like? Well, Paul gives us a few ideas. One, it's not to slander anyone, right? Not speaking up against others within the church or outside of the church. Even when we disagree, even when we're not on the same page, Paul is clear for, church, for the church, for the Christian, how we're supposed to interact with our neighbors and others in the community. He starts by saying, well, we don't talk ill of them. That doesn't mean we don't speak truth. That's different. But it's done in relationship. Next, he says, we avoid fighting. Whether this is physical fighting or uh, with words. 
again, inside the church, because we know if you've been in church for any amount of time, that, that goes on, right? When we start talking about changing things or, or doing something different, like we, we, we get ready. Those are fighting words. And outside of the church, Paul's saying, hey, you guys can't do that. That's what, the, that's what the people of Crete do. Like that, again, he's contrasting the two worlds. He's saying, that's what this world does. You can't do that. He says, instead, you need to be kind. This word kind in the, in the Greek uh, can be translated into a couple different ways. Uh, one is uh, to be gentle with. You need to be gentle with non-believers and with believers for that matter and you need to be gracious so this means being considerate of the fact that someone may not know who Jesus is and so in their mind they're, they're living life the way they're supposed to because it's all they know we're supposed to give that consideration as we interact with people This whole idea that, that Paul's talking about here is we approach people with humility. That's what it's about. It's humility. One Bible dictionary says this, that the personal, it's the personal quality of being free from arrogance and pride and having an accurate estimate of one's worth. The person with humility does not look down on others. Humility in the New Testament is closely connected with the quality of gentleness. How do we walk alongside our neighbors who may not know Jesus? We do it in a humble way, in a way that's gentle and considerate and gracious. Why? Because we were given all those things through Jesus. Jesus looks at us while we were sinners and says, I forgive you. It's okay. I love you. Come home. That's what we're called to do. And not only are we supposed to do that, do that in the church and all the, in, outside of the church, to our neighbors and our family and our friends, it says all people. All people. So regardless of race, religion, creed, gender, sexual orientation, Jesus is calling us to go to all people. Doesn't say it's going to be easy. I guarantee you, it won't be. But he calls us to all people. We are to extend the same courtesy of gentleness and humility that we see in Jesus and we receive from Jesus to all people. So, we move outside of the walls because we were once outside of the walls. Let's pick up in verse 3, and then we'll, I'll read the rest of, uh, up until verse 8, which will be the rest of the, the passage for today. It says this, For we too were once foolish, foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, 
living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. Not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to His mercy. Through the washing of regeneration and the renewal by the Holy Spirit, He poured out His Spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that, having been justified by His grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that you who have believed God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. These are good and profitable for everyone. We share the message of Jesus and we live it out with others because we were once in need of salvation. Paul is reminding these new converts through Titus. If if you remember in chapter 1 when we started this series, this new church plant was mainly new converts. People who had had grown up in a pagan culture and society, who had pagan traditions, probably generations and generations of them. He's reminding them, hey, as you go outside of the church walls, remember that you too once didn't know Jesus. And that's true for us. Whether you've grown up in church or not, if you've grown up in church, I I can guarantee you there was a point in your life where it actually made sense. And up until that point, you were going because mom or dad took you or grandma took you or you, you enjoyed Sunday school or VBS was fun, whatever the case. At some point, you have a similar experience that Paul does on the road to Damascus where Jesus confronts you and says, what are you doing with your life? And if you didn't grow up in the church, but you're here now, and you're devoted to Jesus, maybe for you this is a, a concept or an idea that connects real easily. The remaining part of the, the message, really I'm going to look at um, or pull from a commentary by John Stott. And he says that there are six ingredients of salvation in verses uh, 3 through 8. Because that's what this whole passage is about. Scholars argue whether, whether verses 4 through 7 are, are a creed of some sort that either Paul is pulling from or has established in his writing, or if it's a a hymn, if it's a traditional song that the church sang to, uh, to know deeply and theologically who Jesus was and what he had come to do. And so here's the first ingredient, verse 3. There was a need for salvation. Paul links the duties of a Christian to the doctrine. The things that we do as Christians are completely connected and inseparable from the things that we believe. So he's saying, if you believe that you're saved, if God has worked in your heart in that way, then you have to live it out. You don't get to say one thing and do another. 
And so why do we live differently? It's because we were once headed for doom and destruction, and we were rescued by Jesus. Paul says that before Christ, we were foolish. We lack sense, is what that word means. We're disobedient, refusing to obey what God has called us to. But not only are we, have we, are we foolish and disobedient, it goes deeper. It says that we're deceived and that we're enslaved to sin. And so the first two, being foolish and disobedient, those are our adjectives describing ways that we live life. But the other two, the other two are verbs. And the interesting thing is that the word deceived, the way it's used in the Greek, is a passive verb, meaning that something's done to us. Or we're the recipients of, the, of, the, of the, the action. And so Paul is making it very clear that because of sin, Satan deceives us and we don't even know it. We're completely blind to it. But we're impacted by it. And ultimately what it does, the implication of being deceived is that we live life oblivious to the, to the sin that's going on in our lives and we think that we can produce the thing that can save us. We think we can be the ones that lift ourselves out of our sin. If I just do a little bit better. And we're deceived so much and so deeply that we're actually enslaved to it. And you might be sitting there thinking, man, that, that's a bit much, isn't it? Like, that's heavy. But it's true. Look at human history. Look at the wars and the fighting and the arguing and the... And the, the the hurt and heaviness that has gone on time and time again about the same things, power and money. Look at our culture today. How incredibly selfish are we? Inward focused about how my life can be better. We live in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. When Paul's talking about folks who live that way, to live in malice is to wish uh, evil on people. Turn on your favorite cable news station. That takes five seconds to see that that's true. When we live envious of others, we're resenting the, the things that they have, and we're coveting over those things. And he says we're being hated, and we're hating others, and all that does is create this endless cycle of fighting and disagreement.
One commentator says this, uh, or actually John Stott says this about the need of salvation. He says it's a contrast between submissiveness, right? Remember uh, verse 1 of chapter 3, be submissive, obey, versus foolishness. Between obedience and disobedience. Between readiness to do what's good and enslavement by evil. Between kindness and being peaceful. Versus malice and envy. Between being humble and gentle and being hateful and hating. Here's the second ingredient. Uh, it's verse 4. He talks about the source of, the sal- of salvation. So, pagan culture in this time, in this place, uh, really would have said, do anything that makes you feel good. That's good. Right? And we're 2,000 some years removed, and that hasn't changed much. What does culture say? Go do what makes you feel good. You do you. You only live once. It's the same thing. We see, go to Barnes and Noble and you'll see books on self-discovery and self-help. Paul's saying that that's not what it's about. And I think there's a difference to, to acknowledge and point out here that what Paul's talking about is not being self-aware. That's a completely different thing. I think that's healthy, and we should, as Christians, we should be self-aware of our own mess and baggage and, and, and learn how to process that and work through that. What he's talking about is being self-centered and selfish. And, and we see that today in our culture with the rise and the movement of New Ageism. That says you can save yourself. If you do all the right things, you can be the one that saves yourself. Paul's saying, nope, can't do it. He says that when he points to the fact that we're enslaved by sin if we don't know Jesus. If if we can't even see this, this thing, this sin, how can we save ourselves? We don't even know what our enemy is. But he turns from the idea of us hating outside of Christ, hating one another and, and being hated on, and he turns back to the love of God. And he says, when Christ appears, when Christ appears, he saves us. It's Jesus. And the work that he does on the cross and the fact that he resurrects three days later and he defeats sin and death, that's the saving grace. That's where salvation comes from. Christ offers himself up as the ultimate sacrifice, having lived a perfect life, to make us, humanity, right with the Father. And so God, he shows, shows us this kindness that Paul's talking about to a people who are, are wicked and, and ungrateful. Think of the city of Crete and, and how God moves in that place and all these new converts come to Christ and this new church is planted. He loves us. God has a, whole, a concern for the whole world, all of humanity. 
He shows us mercy by extending to helpless people who can't save themselves a Savior. And then, and then through grace, He reaches out to sinful man who's guilty and undeserving and says, here you go. Here's this gift of salvation. So the source of salvation, Paul is saying to Titus, is, is Christ and nothing else. He moves on and, and talks about the ground uh, of salvation. And he points back to, verses four, to verse 4 where he says that it's the love and mercy of God. That's the purpose and reason for salvation is because God loves us. Not because of our own doing, our own righteousness. Not, we've not merited anything, but it's by the mercy and love of God. His mercy leads him to send his son. His son willingly gives of himself as a sacrifice for all sins so that you and I could be made whole and made new in Christ. Next, John Stott says that it's the, the means of salvation. So how does he do this? Well, he saves us by the washing of our heart and our mind and our soul and our spirit. And we're made new. We're regenerated into a new creation, is what 2 Corinthians says. We die to our old self, cursed by sin, and, and Christ makes us a new being in Him, by the work that he did on the cross. And then we're renewed constantly by the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us as this new being. And so here's where the transformational part takes place, right? The things we once did, we no longer do. The ways we once lived and treated people and we worked and we, we ate and we drank, we, we change every aspect of our life because of the transforming power of the Holy Spirit inside of us. We're not doing that out of our own, our own will or, or ability, but we're enabled and we're empowered by the Holy Spirit. A lot of scholars argue about what the, the word washing here means, whether it has to do with uh, physical water baptism or not. Some traditions equate this passage to mean that salvation comes uh, by water baptism and without it, you're, you aren't saved. For us, we, that's not the circle we're in. As Quakers, that's not what we believe. And actually, the, the whole movement, one of the, the reasons that George Fox starts this movement, or this movement starts up, is because he sees the Church of England and all of the emphasis and importance they're putting on physical baptism and, and communion, saying that that is the mode by which we are saved. And he says, that's not biblical. That's not true. Does Jesus do those things? Yes, absolutely. It's in Scripture. Does he call us to do those things? Yeah. But what does that mean? George Fox says that it's, it's this internal thing that takes place, this spiritual thing inside of us. 
that transformative power when we're baptized in the Spirit, that's what's happening. We're being changed. And we're spiritually dying to our old selves and Christ makes us new. Paul and later other Protestant traditions would point to uh, actual water baptism as an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. So you know what? We, the, the churches that we work alongside of that do practice this and would say, yeah, that, that's true. We link arms with them, even if we believe differently. Because they're acknowledging the inward part that's happening, that's more important, while the other part is, is helpful for community and celebration and acknowledgement of the change that we're making inside of our hearts. The important part is the thing going on inside of our hearts. And Paul says it's that inward experience, that inward rebirth that's going on that makes us right with God, that makes us justified through the eyes of God. Regeneration, new birth, and justification uh, being made right are connected and can't be separable. You cannot take those two and make them their own thing. God works together in those ways. One commentator says this about this issue. He says, you can never confuse justification and regeneration, our new status and our new birth, nor should we ever attempt to separate them, for God always does both together. He never justifies people without at the same time regenerating them, and he never regenerates without justifying them. The work of Christ in justification and the work of the Spirit in regeneration are simultaneous. That's what the Church of England essentially did. They separated the two, saying that through this process of baptism, you're, re- you're made new, you're born again, you're saved. And if you, don't, and if you do that, then you're justified. And, and that's, that's not what Paul is saying. That's not what's going on here. The two are connected. And so by the spiritual working of the Holy Spirit inside of us, and when we're made new, we're also justified. And why? John Stott says that the goal of salvation is that we can be welcomed into the family of Christ and that we become heirs of the blessing of being children of God. It's eternity with Him. being made right with God and being made new, we can experience uh, our present life in a new way while we wait for our full inheritance, which is, satisf- which is our sanctified state that is to come. Our full inheritance is why we're saved, so that we can enjoy that one day with Jesus. And with that salvation, presently, what that means is that we can enjoy spiritual security, knowing that we, are, we have been made right in the, the eyes of God and that 
we are a part of Christ's family, and that brings hope. It means that we live life differently. It means that when things, hard things come up in life, we react differently. We address them differently. We work towards those things differently. And then for our future, we know that ultimately, one day we will be with Jesus and all the things that have been wronged in our lives will be made right. The last ingredient is the evidence of salvation. And so what Paul is saying and what John Stott unpacked is he, he says that if there is an inward event that takes place that makes us new, by which we are saved, it has to have implications on how we live our life. And what Paul keeps saying, verse 8 is probably one of, for the whole book, it's probably one of the key verses in the entire book when he's talking about good works and why we do what we do. Paul emphasizes the importance of, uh, of the work of salvation. And he says, this is trustworthy. Like, you can trust me when I say this. That phrase, tr a trustworthy saying, uh, Paul writes that about five times throughout the pastoral epistles. And it's always as a point of emphasis. It's always with, uh, in, in a way that's saying, hey, look here, look at this one more time. Remember this. And he's saying, well, we're not saved by good works, right? We can't merit our salvation. There's nothing that we can do that's going to make us right with God. Our good works are a result of being saved. And so we think about in that in terms of the fruit that we bear and the evidence that it gives others. That comes as a result of, of being saved by Jesus. And this idea of good works is, if you know about Paul, he, he at times uh, butts up with some of the other New Testament writers because like James is talking to a mainly Jewish audience and he's talking about uh, good works in a different way. And what Paul is saying here is that the good works are a result of the work that Christ has done in our lives. This, uh, this phrase, good works, Paul writes this 14 times throughout the, the pastoral epistles. So this is a big deal. The evidence in our life that Christ has rescued us and saved us is a huge deal. And if others can't see that, we're missing it. It's a major theme of this entire book. And so we live differently in doing good works as a way to serve others and as a way to live out our testimony of what Jesus has done in our lives and what he continues to do so that people outside of the church and in the church would desire the same thing and come to know him. That's how we interact with our community.
That's how we live differently. Paul writes to, Tim, to Titus to encourage the building up of the church in Crete. He knows that there's a long list of, of issues and tasks that need to be addressed. All right, we talked about that. There's always something to do in church, always. Which they'll get to over time. But Paul reminds Titus that the Christian life is one that comes with distinct and noticeable identifiers. This is important for Titus and us to remember. Throughout the entire book of Titus, Paul is looking at the two different worlds that are in the city of Crete and saying, don't be that way, this is what you should be doing. One of the main ways others are to know that we follow and have surrendered to Jesus is by how we treat each other. How we love each other, how we serve each other, how we give for each other, how we sacrifice for each other. We saw in chapter 1, Titus addresses the issue of leading in the home and then he lays out what that's supposed to look like how we treat our spouse and our kids, our family. Chapter 2, he lays out what church looks like, church leadership looks like, how we, uh, we steward the blessing it is to lead in the church God's people. And again, he does that by laying out the character of that person and what that actually looks like in everyday life. And then this morning, we're reminded the role of the Christian as they live, as we live life in and with our community. While this is a small book, I mean, it's only three chapters. You can read it multiple times in one sitting. There's so much to unpack. And I don't know where you are, but as I've unpacked this passage, this book, over the past few weeks... There is this urge inside of me to say, get up, let's go. There's so much work to do. There's so many people to reach. And really, I think that feeling of let's get up and let's get, get to work, it, it has a twofold implication. The first is we need to honestly and deeply examine our lives. To see if they line up to what Paul's talking about. To see if they're a reflection of how we're supposed to love and lead in our homes, in our churches, and in our communities. With the ultimate question being, do we jump into those good works that are going on around us? And then the second implication is, is that there's an urgency to love and lead others in a way that is true and honorable. And we tell them about Jesus because it can change their lives. Like it's changed our lives. Next week we finish up the book of Titus. 
And, and like I said, we're, I'm going to preach through Psalm 16 um, after yearly meeting sessions. Uh, and, and then we're going to look at how do we live this out? How do we live out this leading and loving well in the worlds that God has put around us? The 8 to 15 people on average that God has placed in our life that only we can reach. We're going to look at that. And it's not, it's not this magic formula. I mean, it's all from Scripture. You'll see we're going we're gonna to look at uh, how this plays out in Scripture. We're going to look at how we can do this practically in our lives. It's not that it's a magic formula, but we have to be intentional with it. Like with any other good thing in our life, we, it just doesn't happen by chance. We have to put in the time and work and effort. We have to wrestle through the hard parts. But my hope is as we do that, as we wrestle through being intentional with the people around us, those that God has called us to, that people's lives would be transformed, that Jesus would be pointed to and he would be praised and glorified and that people would come to know him more. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the gift uh, that is your son, Jesus. I thank you that it is not based on anything that we can do, good God, but that you give us the gift of salvation through him out of grace and mercy and love for us. Jesus, I pray that your spirit would, would live inside of us in a way that changes us from the inside out. And that others would see that and they could point to that and know that it's not because we're these perfect people, but because we're imperfect people who have a perfect God who changes us and works in us and through us. God, I pray that they would come to know you as well. We thank you for the reminder in Titus 3 this morning of what it means to live in our communities with our friends and families and neighbors who may not know you. I pray that you would give us the kindness and gentleness and grace to step into those relationships and to share your message with them so that they might be transformed and come to know you as well. We love you. We serve you. And it's in your son Jesus' name we pray.